It wasn't so long ago that I heard a teacher or I heard a report of a teacher giving a talk whereby he said, in effect, that hope was something that practitioners should let go of. And I was rather struck by this, wondering what he actually meant. I never asked him. However, I did think quite a lot about it. and He may have been talking about not getting lost in hope and not clinging to hope, of course. That would be wise counsel. However, I kind of suspect that he was saying more than that. Anyway, I want to make an argument in support of hopefulness because I think it can be a very useful, effective, helpful way of building up our storehouse of wholesomeness, strengthening ourselves with strength and hopefulness if we hold it in the right way, if we approach it in the right way. There is, of course, a naive hope whereby the good feelings that arise in association with hopefulness are just something to cling to and indulge in and, and become lost in, and, and that's kind of embarrassing, really. And not, you know, I wouldn't encourage that. However, without hope, there's a very real risk that we can succumb to feeling hopeless. And, and if we understand that hope is being positively oriented towards the future, and a hopeful disposition, and a positive attitude, and we have thoughts about the future, we think about the future a lot, most of us. And if we're not positively oriented towards the future, then we can be very negatively oriented towards the future and that can have disastrous consequences like cynicism is a symptom of being lost in hopelessness. So is there a way, well I would suggest there is a way of approaching the cultivation of hopefulness as, a, as an intentional strategy for protecting ourselves from the chaos of life. You don't have to look very far at any stage, not just you know, 21st century Britain, anywhere in the world throughout all human history. Then there's not some political upheaval, there's a, some volcano going off, or tsunami, or relationship issue, medical issue, all the challenges that we're all familiar with in life. There's plenty around that. And I would suggest that we can buoy ourselves up if we have a hopeful disposition and cultivate it in a skillful way, in a wise way. And so I'd like to say something this evening in support of that. Part of the difficulty in discussing or considering 
our relationship to hope is to do with what we actually mean by having hope. What does it mean by to have hope? I was thinking about this earlier, remembering many years ago now when I was a junior monk, I think three or four years I've been a monk, and I was living in an area of Thailand called Chiang Rai, in the far north of Thailand, near the, what's called the Golden Triangle, where Thailand, Burma, and Laos meet, and staying in a very small monastery up there, and, and it coincided with a time when I discovered that I had a reasonable grasp of the Thai language, and I could listen to Ajahn Chah's talks and understand them reasonably well. And that was a real turning point. It was very exciting. And I didn't, didn't, have to, didn't just have to read translations. I could actually listen directly to his talks. And the teacher I was living with at the time, he had a habit of speaking exceedingly fast, and I often couldn't understand him. However, I, my good friend Ajahn Turidamo was living at Wapapong, Ajahn Chah's main monastery at the time. And it was a, a, a time when a, a lot of young men had, had arrived at Wapapong to take just temporary ordination for the rains retreat. And so Ajahn Chah was giving these talks in, in the dialect of central Thailand, whereas often he would, he would give his talks in the dialect of the northeast, it's called Isan, and that's more akin to the language of Laos, and I couldn't understand that. However, so this, this rains retreat, Ajahn Turidama was recording these talks given by Ajahn Chah, and, and he was kindly sending me tapes up to the monastery I was living in, posting them to me. And I was sitting in my little grass-roof hut up there, listening on this tape recorder, and really enjoying listening directly to Ajahn Chah and having a reasonable grasp of it. One of the talks that he gave, he sent me, and I translated, and is these days published in the Collective Teachings of Ajahn Chah's called Reading the Natural Mind. And I confess I'm somewhat embarrassed about the translation because I, I really was probably not qualified to be translating something to be published. However, I do remember the joy and the gladness being able to hear directly Ajahn Chah's voice and hear what he was saying. And he was talking about this business of wanting, having, how to how to have wanting, how to have desire. And here we're talking about how to have hope. And he was talking about the right way to have wanting. He's saying how you know, before the Buddha was awakened, he had wanting in a way whereby it caused him suffering. You know, Turn wanting into craving. We have wanting with wrong understanding, then then we identify with that movement of heart, movement of mind we call wanting. We become it, we become lost in it. And we turn wanting into craving, and that is suffering. However, after the arising of right understanding, after the Buddha's awakening, he could see clearly the truth of wanting, that movement, called desire or wanting. And he, his relationship to it was transformed. In other words, he was having wanting in a different way. He was still having it, but having it a, in a very different way, having it with right understanding, was how Ajahn Chah was explaining it. And the understanding that Ajahn Chah was talking about here was not just a conceptual understanding. He wasn't talking about thinking about wanting. 
talking about a, a transformed relationship to that energy in the heart, that movement you know, of wanting. So talking about having hope, I think it's important that we're quite clear the way we have hope determines whether it's helpful or harmful. If we have it in a, with unawareness, with clinging, really, just enjoying the pleasant feeling that it gives and losing ourselves in it, then it's actually a source of potential suffering. It might feel good for a while, then it'll change and we'll be disappointed and pull into hopelessness and then we cling to that. And go backwards and forwards, hope and hopelessness, hopelessness and hope. That's tedious, that's unhelpful. If we approach it with what technically called satipanya, or an accuracy of awareness, then that hope can be a source of energy, a source of strength. So talking about trying to get rid of desire, something Buddhists often do, and it can really create a lot of misunderstanding, trying to get rid of, like, trying to get rid of liking, trying to get rid of disliking. It's like wanting to cut your nose off, cut your tongue out, so you don't have any pleasant or unpleasant sensations or smells or flavors. That's crazy. The practice is not about getting rid of agreeable or disagreeable, likable or dislikable smells and tastes. Whoever we are, awakened or thoroughly unawakened, we're going to experience agreeable and disagreeable sensations, sights and smells and tastes. So we're not talking about trying to pretend that we don't like cheesecake with lashings of cream floods of maple syrup that's likable what matters is our relationship to liking our understanding, our perspective on liking is there a perspective on it whereby you can feel liking and say that's liking there's a space of awareness in which liking is arising and ceasing and you don't have to be driven by the liking you don't have to eat the cheesecake with lashings of cream and floods of maple syrup. Not just because we're repressing and say, well, I mustn't eat this, it's not good for me. It's going to make me fat. It'll give me a headache. Block on my arteries. And repressing the feeling of liking, of wanting to eat cheesecake. That's an unaware approach to wanting. A more skillful approach is to have prepared our spiritual faculties so that we have disciplined attention available, not just on a mental level, also on an emotional level, on a, in the body, of feeling what does wanting feel like, what does liking feel like, what does not wanting, aversion, what does aversion feel like. There's always going to be offensive smells around, offensive noises more offensive behavior. Somebody behaving in a petulant, narcissistic, abusive way that hurts. It's offensive to the mind. And disliking arises. Do we have to be lost in that disliking? Or is there a, a perspective that we can cultivate? Can we discipline our attention so as to 
feel the disliking without becoming it. So this consideration of the place of hope, I would suggest that it turns on how well-developed our attention is, if it's well-developed, if it's sensitive and disciplined, so we can really pay attention at the right time, the right way, and feel what we feel, and we don't have to get lost in it. And then we can do the work. The work of deconstructing the deluded sense of self is hard work. The letting go of my way is hard work. Some aspects of our practice and developing a relative degree of tranquility of mind and peacefulness of heart and gratitude and loving kindness and these qualities are very agreeable and hopefully by now we all realize that's only part of the picture. That's building up the storehouse of wholesomeness. The work is actually the purification. We need that build up, we need that accumulation of wholesomeness for sure. We need that self-confidence, that ease of being. We need all those qualities so as to be able to do the work which is to endure that which feels unendurable, which is not getting my way. The anger flares up, disappointment flares up, sadness flares up. It takes a it takes a strength of being to endure. So long as we're getting it my way all the time, we're thoroughly agreeable conditions, weather and food and health and the people we live with and meditation's going well. If your health turns and you're not well and the company we've got is not agreeable the weather's disagreeable, then how do we manage? That's another part of our practice, how to meet ourselves when things are thoroughly disagreeable. I'm reminded of something Ajahn Chah used to say about how do you gauge the quality of a monk? How well established is he in his practice? You can't tell by when he's sitting in meditation agreeable circumstances. The way to gauge the competence of a monk is to observe him on a festival day in the monastery. There's huge crowds of people in the monastery, all the distractions. How does he hold himself? So the work that we have to, as I say, deconstruct the deluded sense of self involves letting go of my way, letting go of my way, letting go of my preferences, not getting rid of, not pretending that we like things that are distinctly dislikable, rather transforming our relationship to our preferences so that we're not getting lost in them. If we get our own way, that's agreeable, then we enjoy it. Meditation goes well, whether it's agreeable company is, is lovely and we feel grateful for that and enjoy the good fortune. If we get lost in it, then when conditions change, we're likely to get lost in that. So this work of developing a skillful relationship to hopefulness is it's a, potentially a way of giving us that kind of strength that 
sustains us when the going gets tough, potentially giving us the stability so that we don't get blown over by the worldly winds, you know, the worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, honour and insignificance. We all get blown by these worldly winds. Do we get blown over by them? Well, it takes a stability, it takes a strength, it takes an agility. Again, where does that agility come from? I would suggest that we have the inner strength, the inner resource of hopefulness being positively oriented towards life. That can be a great help. If we don't have that, then we have the opposite. We have fear. We have talking a lot lately about our, our DDB, our denied dukkha backlog. If we've got a big DDB, big denied dukkha backlog, not a lot of agility, not a lot of good feeling, then we're probably locked into controlling mode most of the time. We can't adjust. It's like a festival day in the monastery and something doesn't work, the sound system doesn't work, or it starts raining, or you know, like the other day the, the bus got stuck on the neighbor's field. And, you know, if we don't have agility, then we can't accord with the conditions. And we, then we default to trying to control everything. It's perfectly understandable. Compulsively controlling is a default strategy for coping with life when we've got a big backlog of denied pain. How do we traverse that territory? Well, hopefulness can help, I would suggest. Being positively oriented towards life. And and yet if we are still, if we don't appreciate how important it is to maintain a proper perspective on hopefulness, then we can just we just get lost in it, just indulge in it. Create even more suffering for ourselves and for others, potentially. That occasion when I heard the report of the this teacher talking about how Buddhist practitioners should let go of hope. It was an occasion where I, I decided to write an essay on the subject and I referred to hope as a form of creative vigilance. I don't quite know why that turn of phrase occurred to me. However, it seemed to fit. You know, hope is a form of creative vigilance. And, and when I thought about it later, yeah, it does. It does fit. We all need vigilance, alertness, aliveness, presence. If we don't have vigilance, then we we can be caught off guard and get taken over by our habits of heedlessness. And whether it's somebody praises us and we start indulging, get all puffed up, and then have to deal with that difficulty or. Somebody dismisses us or says something offhand and we get offended and feel all unappreciated and get lost in that. And if we don't have vigilance, then we can get blown around by the world. And then creative, well, people use the word creative in all sorts of ways these days. I, I figure I was using it because it has this association with being not necessarily linear logical, kind of maybe slightly tricky. 
because our deluded personalities are really tricky. You know, we, maybe you've found in meditation practice some approach that sort of works for a while, and then, and then after a while it doesn't seem to work anymore. Why is that? Well, because the deluded sense of self is now pretending that it's doing the technique. We're not really doing it anymore. When we first came across it, we were doing it with a, a degree of not knowing what we were doing, and there was an aliveness and newness to it. And as we get used to it, then my way takes over. The, the deluded sense of I is doing it, and it doesn't work anymore. So sometimes in practice, we need some slightly tricky. I, mean, I hesitate to use the word devious because that sounds dishonest. It is sort of slightly devious. It's conscious deviousness. And I think hope can be like that. Naive hope, well, that's, as I say, that's not suitable. However, an intentional, conscious relationship to hopefulness can buoy us up when life is difficult. And in that sense, a kind of a creative approach to life's difficulties. I remember um, the great Chinese master, Master Shunhua, talking about, well, related to this topic. He, I was listening to a talk, and I was visiting a monastery in Bangkok, Wat Bawon, and he was there, and he had been to Malaysia, and he had these two monks with him. I think Hang Shu and Hang Chao, I think were their names. They, they did the three steps, one bow pilgrimage up. California, I think the full length of California. Anyway, a very long way, and, and they'd been to Malaysia, and now they were visiting Thailand, and they were visiting this monastery where I happened to be staying, and, and Master Shunhua gave a, a Dhamma talk, and then there was a question-answer session, and, and people were trying to get out of Master Hua what his approach to practice was. You know, what is your technique? It's often the case that these Theravada Buddhist meditators always wonder, what technique are you doing? Do you do Anapanasati? Do you do Satipatthana? Do you do Vipassana? Do you do Samatha? And they kept asking him, and he, would, you know, he wouldn't really answer the question. and just kept changing the subject. And, and then the bell went for the end of the... Well, actually the bell went, I think it was for evening chanting in the monastery. And, and then he started talking, and he said, my job as a teacher is to trick you that struck me at the time. And if you think about it, how tricky and devious our minds are, that stories that we tell ourselves about, like when we're suffering at somebody else's fault, when we feel we feel let down, we feel betrayed at somebody else's fault, when really, really what's going on? It's our anger, it's our heart energy that's manifesting as disappointment, as frustration. As anger, as our heart energy that's causing us to suffer. And yet we're so quick to tell ourselves stories. Or if it's the other way around, you know, I really need to eat this, this piece of cheesecake. Yeah, well, just, I really, you know, I'm just out of respect for the person who mother had made me put so much effort into making this cake, it wouldn't be right if, if nobody ate it. So I think I'll just have a piece. And we tell ourselves that sort of a story. Or like the story where we're going to live forever. You know, nobody's ever lived forever, and yet we still tell ourselves the story that somehow we're going to live forever. And then we find out, you know, we get a medical prognosis.
diagnosis, we're going to die. How could that happen? We tell ourselves these utterly unreasonable stories. And, and so Master Shunwa was saying that you know, he needed to trick his disciples out of the games that they play. You know, Ajahn Chah had a similar approach when somebody was asking him about it, the techniques. You know, what technique do you teach? And he said, my technique is Toraman, which literally in Thai the word Toraman means to torture. However, I don't, obviously that's not what Ajahn Chah was doing. I would say that the word in this context could be translated as frustrate. Frustrate us out of the games that we play with ourselves and the lies that we tell ourselves and including the, the spiritual games that we play, you know, becoming more spiritual. You know, instead of appreciating the spiritual disciplines and techniques and the, the potential they have to help us learn to meet ourselves where we're at with all our limitation and then receive ourselves gently, kindly, sensitively and then let go of ourselves. You know, which is what encouragement is. Instead of that, often we meet ourselves, we judge ourselves, and then we blame ourselves or we blame others, and you know, we have these games that we play, especially the spiritual games, you know, trying to become more spiritual, trying to become more compassionate, and then when we feel anger, we, we can't stand the thought that I'm an angry person. If anger arises, we need to be able to be honest with anger, not indulge in it, However, to feel it, to study it, to meet ourselves until we've fully received it and actually let go of it, not just deny it, disappointment, sadness, to actually feel what we feel, to meet it, receive it, until we can let go of it. So, these games that we play, this is, of course, what Mara wants. Mara wants us to keep playing games. Mara wants us to stay asleep. The Buddha wants us to wake up, to stop playing games. And I would suggest that a skillful access to hopefulness can help in this regard. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.